This show is brought to you by Brain First Training Institute, ICF accredited coach certifications and applied neuroscience training. To become a brain-based coach, get certified in applied neuroscience and stay up to date with what's happening in the world of applied neuroscience and coaching, join our Brain First community over at brainfirsttraininginstitute.com. Hey, it's Ramon and welcome to Brain Coach Radio, where we hear from expert coaches, leaders and trainers who are using applied neuroscience to help their clients get life-changing results. We discuss various coaching topics, neuroscience insights, business tips and much more, all to help you succeed. Now, let's get into the episode. No interruptions. Enjoy, my friends. Hey team, Ramon here. Welcome back. And in this episode, Richard Boyatzis joins the show. Richard is a distinguished professor at Case Western Reserve University. He's also a professor in organizational behavior and one of the world's leading experts in leadership development and emotional intelligence. His research on human behavior has revolutionized management education and helped spawn a new industry of competency consultants, researchers, academics, and executive coaches. If you're a coach, a helping professional, or in a leadership or managerial position, I think you're going to get a lot of value out of this episode. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. So most people would probably be familiar with your work on leadership and perhaps emotional intelligence. So um, I'm curious to know, how did this idea of uh, coaching with compassion come to be? Like, was it an extension of what was happening with emotional intelligence or something different? How did you arrive at this point? The the thing that's really odd is most people know me as... Uh, and, and I'm attributed as one of the four people who started the whole competency movement in human resources with my first competency study against performance in 1970. What most people don't see, and that kind of, as it morphed with all the publications and all that in the 90s, we started calling it emotional intelligence when in fact, it's all really the competencies that are emotional, social, and cognitive intelligence. But what most people don't appreciate is that all started as a reaction to helping people change. And the question was for normal people change what? Now I say normal people because, well, bit of history. This was the actual topic, coaching or helping that got me into psychology. I was um, finishing my degree in aeronautics and astronautics at MIT and had taken six and a half months off to make some money and MIT got me a job in a research lab at Northrop Norair, and I was working on, my specialty was um, uh, control systems for interplanetary vehicles. And I was working on uh, a shuttle design and discovered that I really couldn't stand the day-to-day work. I mean, I love the idea of, this is 1966 and 67. I'd always wanted to go into the space program, which is why I went to MIT, but um, the day-to-day work was horrible. So I, I go back to MIT and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And, and, you know, I, my parents are immigrants from Greece. And by the time my father got out of, you know, landing on Omaha beach and marching through France and Germany for the U S uh, army, you know, he went, he did exactly what every Greek immigrant that I knew in New York city did. They went into the restaurant business. So I did that for a few summers and knew I didn't want to do that. So I ended up going to the Sloan School of Management to take to see if I could take a course because I figured, okay, I don't want to be an engineer. I don't want to go in restaurant business. I might as well go into management. It's got to be easy. You know, I mean, I looked at these 
uh, <clears throat> real idiots that we had managing. You know, it was like the the unit we had out at Northrop was a whole group of Sheldons, and 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 um, anyway, so d- this young professor from Harvard who had just who wasn't actually finished with his PhD, he was about to, who had a full faculty appointment at MIT, David Kolb, experiential learning. Um, <clears throat> got up and described his course, which personally sounded like utter garbage. It was organizational psychology, and I couldn't imagine something fluffier and stupider. But he said two words in his introduction that made me run, literally run, to the basement classroom um, so I could get in because everything was capacity controlled. And the two words were no tests. So I, I like to remind, remember that because <clears throat> sometimes the slightest odd thing can change the course of your life. It was in that course that I had said to him, I'd like to do my term paper on how managers don't help their subordinates. And he said, well, you know, we just finished about three or four weeks ago collecting a two-year set of data on MIT graduate students in their version of the MBA program. And he said, and it's on how they helped each other or not. Would you like to work on some real data? I said, yeah, that'd be fantastic being kind of a geeky person, I wanted to data would be great. Well, he liked what I did. He offered me a summer job. We ended up publishing the article. And in the process, um, it began my lifelong pursuit of how do we help each other become the people we want to be? How do we help our, our couple relationships, our families, our organizations, our countries um, evolve in a way that create sustained desired change. So in the spring of 1967, I started working on helping relationships. Now, the underlying theory we were using was the earlier version of my intentional change theory. Um, that, and, and, and as that evolved, and by 1970, Dave and I were still doing research on this and doing some publishing, but he ended up moving more into the experiential learning. And we kept working together. And then eventually in the mid eighties, he, um, convinced me to leave running consulting companies, uh, and become a full-time professor. So I find him a case. So really it's the coaching and helping that was always a part of my passion and my mission, the competencies, because a lot of the seventies, I started working in 1970 in the Brockton VA, um, my thesis advisor and close friend, um, David McClellan had written a book on the effect of alcohol, uh, of, of unconscious power fantasies on alcohol abuse by men. And the VA hospital had said, Hey, you know, you propose that you could do more effective therapy. Let's try it. So he, I was working with him on some of the research and I was also interested in psychotherapy. So, and, and I'd gone through a lot of the training. So he said, okay, you want to take this on? So I did. So I spent most of the seventies doing psychotherapy, group therapy, and basic research on the effect of alcoholism, uh, and how to treat it. And so when I say quote unquote, normal people, I'm not, um, casting aspersions on any alcoholics, but I'm just saying people without any psychodynamic manifestation of a major problem, um, but the fact is that I also applied the same work in my work with alcoholics and drug addicts. So um, what basically happened is we, uh, somewhere in the 90s, 
as we are applying this to MBA programs and managers and executives worldwide, uh, this model of intentional change theory, I was teaching a course on complexity theory in our engineering school with a geneticist and a mathematician and a systems um, person. And it dawned on me that to really reflect, I had to change the name of the theory to reflect the all the different fractals. And about that time, uh, Dan Goldman and I and Annie McKee were finishing our book, Primal Leadership, which, you know, had the awesome, you know, result, which was quite a shock to be an international bestseller for a number of years. But in the process, um, <clears throat> I remember one of my faculty colleagues telling me after, you know, all this stuff was happening with the book, he said, well, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I'm still working on the theory and what I feel I need to do is do two things in concert. One, I need to prove that working on vision first is so important because I, you know, I grew up in an era and I started working on coaching and doing one-on-one coaching in 1969. I worked with Walt Mahler at Monsanto in 1970 briefly. And, you know, and he had a coaching practices survey from the 60s. So uh, it was fairly um, typical way to approach helping leaders and executives and professionals. But what became very clear is that um, everybody, and even today, the certification agencies keep thinking we have to be problem focused. We have to only take the client's definition of what they're supposed to work on, which is absurd. I mean, if my internist, I mean, the analogy is if I feel ill, I go to the internet, I diagnose, you know, given my symptoms, what disease I have. Then I go to a different part of the internet. I figure out what medicines would help it. And if I walked into my internist and said, here, I've diagnosed myself and this is the medicine and this is the dosage, please write a prescription. He would laugh at me. And if he did write a prescription, he should be, you know, thrown out of the AMA. And that's what the coaching agencies, certification agencies are telling us. And our research now, Now we have 39 longitudinal behavioral studies, more published studies on the actual outcomes than anybody else. We have two fMRI studies we've got that specifically work on the coaching. We've got another fMRI study we did on the relationships. And then we've got two hormonal studies, all um, uh, the hormonal studies with uh, folks in their 30s and 40s. So one of the things that becomes very clear from all of this is that vision is the key driver. And that without that as the context, working on plans, problems, or specific goals turns people off. I mean, there's got to be a reason why the $85 billion a year spent on management training alone, not sales training, just management training, leads to so little change. There's got to be a reason why the $125 billion a year spent on management education, undergraduate and graduate, all over the world leads to so poor quality of leaders and managers. And the reason is we're approaching it the wrong way with good intentions, but the wrong way. And now we've got, um, you know, certification agencies because they aren't using any truly anchored performance anchored competency studies. Um, they're using Delphi techniques to say, what are the characteristics that we should seek in coaches? They're ending up, uh, vindicating or um, sanctifying common common mythology. And unfortunately, it it was very clear to us by 1989 and 90 that the vision 
the real deep sense of purpose, the vision, the dream had to come first. But that was underway. And uh, we had a number of studies designed. We hadn't done them yet. But what I started to ponder was the real issue that I thought was going to make or break this was the quality of a person's relationships with the people that they're seeking help from. Now, whether these are professional coaches or physicians or nurses or teachers or clerics or people that go under the label of coaches, I, I didn't really care. What I wanted to do was to study that process. And we started a doctoral student and faculty study group. And, and that's what started the whole focus on coaching per se. And what became clear by 2003, that in my theory, this idea of coaching to this positive emotional attractor to help counterbalance the negative emotional attractor, which we need, but to help activate parts of the uh, neural networks and the hormonal systems that allow you to be open to new ideas and people that um, we ended up calling somewhere. Melvin Smith and I came up with the phrase coaching with compassion somewhere around 2003 or four, because we were using a Confucian oriented definition of compassion, not feeling for people in pain, but it could also, but in addition, feeling for people in joy who want to growth grow. Uh, it, now I just read a journal article week before last on post-traumatic growth and post-ecstatic growth. So uh, there's now emerging recognition in the field that eudaimonic approaches can really help as well as uh, hedonic. Anyway, that led to the sense that if we could get people to do this, and, and we started calling coaching with compassion because at the heart of it was caring about the person and this PEA state. And that's when it became clear. And we ended up doing the two fMRI study. Well, the first study of the three was on uh, relationships, resonant versus dissonant. Then we did two specific studies comparing PEA versus NEA coaching and found that, yes, I mean, we can pinpoint the neural activations. And unfortunately, um, when you set specific goals, you actually activate the neural network that helps you analyze things, but it closes you down to new ideas. So, I mean, the, the, the whole thing kind of fit. And, um, and that's kind of how it emerged. And, um, why we feel a lot more often than people think they're involved in coaching for compliance. I mean, I, I speak to coaching groups weekly, either through webinars or, or actual speeches. And one of the things I'm amazed, everybody assumes they coach with compassion and they don't do coaching for compliance. And yet we now have data to show that if you focus on the problem first, if you focus on setting specific goals, um, you're, enabling the person to wallow in this negative state, which closes them down. So um, it ends up being a really tough issue. And, and people who dabble in neuroscience, but actually aren't doing it, um, are anywhere from 15 to 20 years behind the time. So, you know, I, I was giving a speech a few years ago on leadership in a group in Chicago, and one of the founders got up and she was supposedly the neuroscience guru of the team. 
And I, I was, it was really sad because she started talking about how important the prefrontal cortex was to establish empathy when in fact, most of the prefrontal cortex does the opposite. Some of it's key, but, um, most of it is around the issue of rationality and decision-making. And, um, you know, and it, so part of it is just helping us use neuroscience to understand the underlying mechanisms. Uh, and anyway, so I'm, I'm just going on and on about uh, professorial diseases. I could talk for eight <laughs> hours. So I'm sure. So this has really been at the, at the core, uh, of your work for, I mean, what are we talking about? Like 40, almost 50 years now. Yeah. I think if you actually count it by calendar years, it's, this is the 53rd year. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to dive into some of the details around the positive emotional attractor and negative emotional attractor. Of course, neuro neuroscience is expanding fairly rapidly. Neuroimaging hasn't been around for very long. How different was the theory before we had the neuroscience component? Um, it, it wasn't. It, it really wasn't. I mean, my theoretical framing of the tipping point because it's a complexity-based model, so you have to have something that tips you into the next stage. My framing of the uh, tipping point issue, how do you move from NEA state to the PEA, that was refined in uh, the late 90s and early aughts, um, actually more on the hormonal. And the neuroscience started to play a major part of that um, in 2000 four, five, six. Um, and part of it is that good neuroscience, like good science, starts with the theory and you're testing some hypotheses. Um, in neuroscience, because it's, you know, very pop psych and people got excited about the sexiness of it, a lot of people thought they were doing it when they were kind of hunting and pecking. And uh, those fishing expeditions aren't really good science because they end up with correlational activity, not causal. So, you know, you could say, well, if you do this kind of thinking, this part of the brain lights up. That doesn't help us because unless you figure out why or what the causality is, um, you're potentially making an association that doesn't really matter. Um, you know, like I remember seeing longitudinal studies um, of, or long-term studies, I should say, of who gets promoted in the 60s and 70s and finding out that um, height ended up being a very important predictor of who got promoted in industrial America. Uh, and, you know, is that because taller people, and by the way, they were men, uh, taller people make better CEOs? No. I mean, our competencies data didn't come up with height or gender ever. It was just correlational. Uh, so, so the issue with neuroscience is that if you design a proper study, if you go in testing a model and a notion, if you do it in such a way that you're actually testing what are called the contrasts between the different specifics, you can do what in neuroscience is called um, forward inference instead of reverse inference. Now, later on in the process, you use you go back and forth um, because that's how you explore new areas. But the, 
Uh, I think what the neuro, the, the fMRI studies did for us is enabled us to explain why what we were seeing was having such strong effect. And it helped with the link, especially the third fMRI study, helped us establish a direct link between activating parts of this empathic default mode network and that stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system, the hormonal system. And those are the two systems, neurological and hormonal, that allow us to be open to new ideas and to be open to people. So the model uh, has been around for a significant amount of time. It, uh, of course, has probably been refined a little over that time, but the neuroscience really confirmed and gave the explanatory component and maybe some mechanisms of action to an existing model. Where was the model born from? Right back in uh, 67, 68, 69, um, I was interested in this helping part of it, and Dave Kolb was too. And um, he had become fascinated with how people move, or, or he wrote a key paper called Transitional Roles that I don't think ever got published actually, but it was a good paper. But it led to um, a model that started to take form in several of our papers. And the idea was, and we ended up calling it um, a model or theory of self-directed behavior change. Because we were trying to see when people took responsibility for changing their behavior, how did they do it? And that, so going into the 70s, that's what we were really focused on is how do people change their behavior? You know, looking at, and and by that point, I was heavily involved in uh, working with alcoholics and drug addicts and, of course, going to a lot of AA meetings. And so it was absolutely fascinating in looking at how um, kind of grounded, grounds up theories or practices like Alcoholics Anonymous could work so fantastically. Um, and, and posing the question, you know, why is medicine so far behind? Um, and starting to really raise the question, why is uh, psychotherapy, you know, kind of not having the impact we thought it would? I mean, when ISYNC did this classic study in, in England showing that people improved on their symptoms from being on the waiting list to see a psychotherapist as much as those people who saw the psychotherapist, you started to appreciate the fact that the promise of the talking cures uh, may not be what we thought it was. <clears throat> Excuse me. And and even then, <clears throat> um, I mean, the, the therapy program I developed was a group therapy program because we were trying to complement medical treatment and AA to say, you know, how you're acting is very important. So we taught them some self-management techniques like we, and we called it meditation training, but it was really deep breathing and progressive muscle relaxation. Um, we taught them how to win arguments in a collaborative way, you know, which very popular in the early seventies was win-win versus win-lose approaches. And, you know, for people who are into alcohol or drug abuse, um, most family conversations are arguments. Uh, so, you know, the idea was how to turn them around and, um, that later, those very same techniques later became a part of what emerged 
uh, called cognitive behavior therapy. So that was really a lot of the early focus. And then by somewhere in the in the 70s, we started, uh, I was working as a part of a research-based consulting group and then took over running it in January 76. But we started deciding that uh, we should have this as the basis for all of the management and um, executive training, leadership training we were doing. It fit nicely because the competency work was starting to reveal what people needed to change on, how they needed to act. And then this, which at the time we called self-directed behavior change theory, told us how to go about it. Um, and that ended up being really very helpful because it established the fact that a person's ideal self or vision was really powerful. Now, the difference is that at that point, I had literally, and Dave and I had literally conceptualized the ideal self and the real self as parallel components, getting to looking at the fit or the misfit between those two, and then that generating the change process. Um, I would say that what the um, advances in our practices, watching the results from the longitudinal studies in the 90s did was to say, wait a minute, the real benefit may be coming from the vision, the ideal self, not the real self. So, um, and then that's when both the hormonal and the um, neuroimaging studies helped us to narrow that down and to be able to, in a sense, nail the issue that, yes, if we focus on the problems, people close down. If we focus on the goal setting, people close down. So, you know, this has huge impact. I mean, you know, since the late 60s, early 70s, people have been pushing. And I, I mean, even some of our early articles said, look, if you set specific goals, you'll change more effectively. What we now know is that's not exactly true that smart goals and all that stuff can be useful at a certain point in the change process, but you have to be way into it before those will help you. And very often, if you establish it as a context up front, it has about the sustainability of New Year's Eve resolutions, which you know every owner of a health club loves because you know people sign up for six months or a year and they go for three weeks in January and that's it. Um, so, so I would say that it's, you know, it, it's a process of um, exploring and then documenting. I mean, one of the things is we were doing it in the uh, course we started in uh, 89 pilot at 90 when um, required for our MBA students at Weatherhead at Case, Western Reserve University. We ended up spending the first third of the course working on their ideal self or their personal vision with their deep sense of purpose, their community contributions, their physical health, their spiritual health, their romantic health. I mean, we covered a very comprehensive view of what your ideal life would be like, work being a subset. And sure enough, you know, these 28-year-olds, 80% of what they saw as their future agenda for themselves had to do with non-work-related things. Uh, as we expanded this to our work with folks in their 30s and 40s and 50s in various degree programs, I was blown away by the fact that um, as soon as I was dealing with folks in their, you know, the 38 to 58 kind of age range, 
they knew how to implement a plan. And what happened was as soon as they got the vision, and if it was really thoughtfully done, which usually took a few months to go through all the layers to get into what's my real purpose in life um, and, and being holistic about it, what I discovered is that people would call me a year, two years, three years, even after they graduate and say, hey, um, professor, you know, I remember what I laid out in my plan and what they were calling their plan was because I remembered in, in many of these students specifically and, and they would, what they were calling their plan was their vision essay. It wasn't the actual plan, which we did later in the course. And, and that's when somewhere in the mid nineties, it started to dawn on me that, you know, maybe these two parts of the discovery process aren't equal. And, and in fact, one creates, creates the context in which the other might help. So, so for our listeners, we better uh, unpack this idea a little bit, perhaps between, say, the positive emotional attractor and negative emotional attractor, so that they can uh, really understand some of the differences between these states and the difference between uh, you know, the, the personal vision and then being, say, uh, very task-oriented. Yep. Okay, the positive emotional attractor and negative emotional attractor are two, uh, in complexity theory terms, emotional attractors that draw you around them, not into them, because that's a different kind of attractor. And we need both. Uh, I call the NEA for shorthand survive and the PEA for shorthand thrive. And the fact is that if you think of it that way, yes, thriving and flourishing is crucial. But if you're not surviving, it's a moot point. I mean, if you're about to get eaten or, or uh, shot, it doesn't matter that you want to flourish. So, uh, and, and the little things like, you know, you and I wouldn't have been able to get up this morning unless we activated the NEA system in our bodies. You know, you can't wake up, you can't focus. But the problem is that we've gone way beyond um, the way our bodies were designed in terms of threat. And, you know, back in yesteryear, um, thousands of years ago, 10, 50,000 years ago, you know, the threats to us that would activate our sympathetic nervous system, our stress response, the NEA, uh, which includes that, uh, you know, was a lion coming near our village or a blizzard or something. I mean, today we get bombarded um, as soon as we wake up because of tweets, texts, uh, you know, and people check Facebook, not for positive reasons. They check it because they are being defensive. Um, so all of a sudden we have an overwhelming source of threats. And the thing that's amazing is that as soon as it is perceived as a threat by our body, not necessarily consciously, we go into a stress reaction. Now, it could be mild. So if somebody cuts you off in traffic and you've only been driving for 10 minutes, that may not be bad. But if you're on, you know, if you've been caught in traffic for two hours and somebody cuts you off, you get hotter. And what becomes very clear is that the buildup of these annoying stress episodes, not even the acute ones, the annoying ones during a day, lead to cognitive and emotional and perceptual impairment. We literally narrow our field of vision. 
So our job in coaching or helping others is to open them up, is to try to help people be more open to considering possibilities. And they have to be able to work with us as people, as well as I think the real long-term future of coaching is how we who are professional coaches stimulate a lot more peer coaching, where we're helping not just the top 300 people in an organization one-on-one with a professional coach, but we're helping the next 15,000 people in the organization help each other. So it's a low cost, if not zero cost option, but that's going to take us helping to give people a little bit of orientation because otherwise sitting around in a group doesn't mean you're going to be healthy and helpful because you could just be a gripe session. So the idea is how do we create moments in which we bring somebody out of this defensive mode, which is ecologically important for continuation of the species, but how do we bring the person into this positive emotional attractor state, which I characterize in the theory, as well as now we have in the research, being in the parasympathetic nervous system, the the hormonal system that's the antidote to the stress, being in more of the empathic neural network, not the task neural network, and just thinking more positive thoughts. So when you think about that versus the negative emotional attractor, you realize it ends up having all sorts of kind of not so subtle differences. Do you think about strengths or weaknesses? Do you think about uh, possibilities or problems? Do you feel mostly hope or fear? Do you end up having a more optimistic view of possibilities versus a pessimistic view which people who are disposed towards pessimism call realist. Um, But it also turns out it has to do with all sorts of other things. To what extent are you engaged in development activities that you would love to try? They're a source of novelty. You're joyfully looking forward to them versus you're doing it because you should do it. Somebody told you to do it. Your in-laws told you how to dress your kids. You're Um, your doctor tells you what you should do. Your boss tells you how you should act. And the problem, and and that's the problem fundamentally with the way many people have used performance improvement plans. They use them as an obligatory uh, path. And that's why I think, unfortunately, most people don't change. Because as soon as you activate the negative emotional attractor, you're enabling a person to close their field of vision and start to shut down cognitively as well. So the the challenge that we have is is not do we keep somebody in the positive emotional attractor because that'd be kind of actually ridiculous. And uh, if you stay in there too long, you're not going to get much done Um, because you're very uh, vulnerable to distractions and things. But the, the issue ends up being, how do we help people move back into it on a regular basis? So one of the issues I used to say in the 70s was, uh, you know, working with uh, addicts, well, don't just exchange your addiction. Because I remember having a number of alcoholic uh, patients who stopped drinking, but now they were working out six hours a day, which, you know, in the 70s was odd. I mean, today, who knows? But in the 70s, it was odd. So... <laughs> One of the issues that we finally proved in a study, which we haven't published yet, um, we got rejected from one journal, so we're getting the paper ready for another, is that it is not just the amount of renewal activities 
PEA activities you do in a day or a week that are key compared to the number of these annoying stress episodes. It's also the variety of them. So the medical research and some of the other stuff I've been involving, but mostly other people looking at the details of this, tell us that you stimulate renewal by helping a person meditate, yoga, tai chi, prayer to a loving God, not a vengeful God, uh, modest exercise, being hopeful about the future, being in a loving, caring relationship, helping people less fortunate, helping the elderly, having a dog or cat primarily uh, as a pet, uh, and being mindful, being tuned in to yourself and your environment. But we now also know with more recent research that laughter and joy and playfulness are key, as is a walk in nature. So the question for somebody who is a coach or a helper of any sort is how do I stimulate this movement into this positive emotional attractor with the person I'm talking to? And, and it doesn't say you always stay there because you move back and forth, but how do you keep bringing them back into it? Because otherwise they just sink into this mire of, you know, woe is me and my life really sucks. And what we've now shown, especially with the neuroscience studies, but the hormonal studies back it up, is that if you start by talking about the person's dream, not their goals, their 15-year, if life were perfect, what would it be like? That literally gets them into a state where they open up their mind. And in the process, they're also open to the person who's sitting with them or talking with them over Skype or uh, Zoom or something that, you know, their coach. Um, and that leads us to, you know, the other, there are really two things that set the context for the coaching process or helping process, being able to be, uh, to, to be more developmental in the sense of move the person periodically into the PEA. One is vision and the dream. And the other is the quality of the relationship to the coach or helper. And, and there, um, we have some pretty good data, including the neurological data, showing that if you have a resonant, caring relationship, you are much more likely to activate, even decades later when the person remembers those moments, to activate the networks in their brain that make them open to new possibilities. That's how powerful our relationships are. Um, I mean, I do an exercise that I started doing in 1999, but I'm still doing um, in all of these various webinars and MOOCs and all that called Who Helped You the Most? And I get people to think of specific people who have helped them the most in their life, become who they are and get to where they are, not just work. And then I get them to think about each of those people in key moments and what did they say or do? And in, when we were doing the research on this in the early 2000s, we found that 80 to 100% of the stories people came up with were about people who opened up possibilities and believed in their strengths. And this has a power. So when I do these exercises, and I've done it, I don't know, in 60 or so countries around the world, and it doesn't matter whether I'm doing Ashtana, Kazakhstan, or Milano, or Cleveland, when I ask people after they think about these things and they often talk about them in pairs or trios, I say, how does it feel right now? And they always report a, sense, a deep sense of gratitude. Oh my God, I felt so loved, cared for, appreciated. I 
Um, sometimes they get a little teary or choked up and sad if a person has passed away. They talk about feeling excited and liberated or very serene. And they talk about being very open to the other person, all of which are biomarkers of the sensations of being in this PEA state. It's uh, it's funny. For the, the last well, maybe four or five years, uh, I have a fairly involved morning routine. I do a, a bunch of different things, a meditation. Um, I've just added some photobiomodulation uh, and some other things. But one of the, apart from the tech stuff, and taking my heart rate variability to see what I can, um, what sort of stress I can put my body under for the day with working out or whether it needs to be more of a relaxation day. But apart from all the tech stuff, one of the things that I've consistently done is connected with my personal vision and at least with one or two of my core values right. really starts my day right. off right. Uh, and I've now started to incorporate some of these other uh, positive emotional attractor exercises as well. And it makes a significant difference to how I start my day. I, I notice it later on in the day. Yeah, Ramon, I think this is an absolutely excellent example that it creates context for your day. Mm. You know, instead of you getting up and say, oh, I've got to get the car fixed today. <laughs> yeah, I'm going through the to-do list. This is all the stuff I feel I have to do. Well, no, on some level, it is a choice. I've uh, These are things that I have chosen to do a lot of the time. And by reconnecting with that that personal vision, I now get excited about these things rather than, oh, there's, they're, they're just things that I have to get done today. Yeah, and, and what I was trying to say earlier is what you're doing with these practices is creating <clears throat> a psychophysiological state in which you're reminding yourself of the purpose. Like, why are you alive today? Why are you proceeding? Um, so it's not just the to-do list. It's like, why is that even relevant? And, and that taps into this deeper, larger thing. I mean, <clears throat> there's a line in our new book, actually in the last chapter, I, I'd wanted to title the last chapter of uh, Get Over Yourself, but <clears throat> my two co-authors and our editor, said that that was too negative. The spirit of the book is more positive. Um, but I, I did uh, quote from that last chapter in a recent uh, Facebook posting in which I, I was talking about the fact that, you know, narcissism and self-righteous self-centeredness is, is rampant throughout the world right now. And um, it's killing us. Uh, and, and I mean, look, and if you question it all and you think it's only the politicians of all ilks that are doing it, I would say, look at the most popular form of photography today. It's the selfie. I mean, when did that start to become important? Well, when we started developing a notion of how self-centered we all have to be. I even have an argument sometimes with people who go mindfulness crazy, because if they're talking about being in the present all the time, and some people who do this, end up using it like a cudgel against their relationships. Well, no, no, don't, don't mess with my aura. I'm being present. You know, just because you want me to take the garbage out, that's not a part of me being present. You know, so what, um, I think there's only one antidote to that, and that's to care for others. You know, to, to step outside of yourself, to, to somehow be a part of the larger picture of humanity. 
And it's one of the things I, I really appreciate about your work is this idea of the relationship. And I know that as coaches, most of us got into this because we like helping other people. And I think that's something that we just, we, we can't forget. Yes, we can draw on the neuroscience. We've got some, you know, great neuroimaging studies and lots of evidence and data and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, we mostly are here because we want to help other people. And I think it's really important to continue connecting with that idea. And, 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 and the feeling that we have, I mean, one of the dilemmas I have with many of my doctoral students is that uh, when they get involved in the coaching, not just the research, but actually learning how to do the coaching and we use it in all of our programs. Um, one of the dilemmas that I've faced repeatedly is they get so emotionally taken with helping people that they stop focusing on the research. <laughs> it ends up being, you know, I have to keep assuring them they'll have the rest of their lives to help people, but right now they should finish their thesis. <laughs> um, no, it ends up being a very, um, a very compelling message. And you stop and think about, you know, is it, you know, how do you feel when you've helped somebody get excited about their future versus telling them to put a raincoat on? Hmm. And in organizations, we do that all the time. I mean, look at the most dominant thing going on in organizations is uh, the task positive or analytic network in, in terms of the neural activation because of all the metrics. You know, we do everything in financial terms and whatever we want to motivate people, we add another goal or add another metric to the dashboard. And what happens as a result of that is people are always worrying about numbers which leads to people being closed to new ideas. I think it's one of the reasons why so many organizations miss key things that their competitors are doing. I mean, it's even called in the strategy field competition neglect or internally why it's not invented here or it's not the way we do it here. All of that is, I think, added to by this overemphasis on analytics. Of course, we need analytics. You can't organize something you can't figure out how to do something without looking at resources and all that but the overemphasis means that our work lives for profit or not for profit are bombarded with a lot of this numeric focus on um measures and that's one of the reasons why i suggest you know your practice ramon of starting your day that way well for folks that run organizations or units in organizations of any sort, I would say they should start every meeting that way. They should start every meeting with some five to 10 minutes of um, maybe telling a story, maybe getting somebody else to tell a story, talking about values, but asking the question, why are we here? And, and don't settle for the task. Uh, go behind it to say, well, why is that important? Um, and if we do that, then when we go into all the budget variances and the things that need to be fixed, we're doing it with a different context in our heads and our hearts. And that's where I think we're using more of the whole body. So many of the, the concepts that we've uh, been talking about here, uh, particularly the positive emotional attractor, negative emotional attractor, uh, the relationship between the coach and the coachee, and, and I'm really using the word coach and coachee. You know, we could we could say that a coach 
it could be a leader, a manager, right. um, a therapist, a teacher, somebody helping another person, uh, and this idea of coaching with compassion. This is all in your your latest book, Helping People Change, which is due out shortly, I believe. Well, yeah. Um, it's being published by Harvard Business Review Press. Um, the actual pub date is September 5th, but the binding date is August 5th. And uh, I know from prior experience because they said they'll have copies of it for the Academy of Management meeting, which happens on uh, August 8th, that um, if you pre-order on Amazon, you actually get it sooner. Okay. So I, so I can't get make it that now. as a promise, yeah. I, I, but that's why I'm encouraging people to pre-order on Amazon. Of course, you can go to any, your favorite bookseller and order it, but, um, uh, but, but hopefully people should have it in their hands. And typically what happens is uh, given the dates, you know, you'd have it in your hands by the uh, second week in August. Yep. So get onto this. And and my co-authors, well, thank you, but my co-authors, Melvin Smith, professors Melvin Smith and Ellen Van Osten, uh, and I work together, have been for uh, decades. Um, and uh, Ellen is the head director of our coaching research lab. And we have, as you know, um, there are only three centers at universities around the world where that have multiple faculty doing multiple studies on coaching over the years and have some training or development programs. Of course, one is Anthony Grant and Mike Cavanaugh and um, Gordon Spence at the University of Sydney in the psychology um, department. And then the other is Eric DeHaan and his folks at Ashridge in the UK and, and us. And uh, the coaching research lab ends up being a, an important Place. I think at any point in time, we have maybe 10 to 12 different studies going on around coaching. And that ends up being really important because uh, I think the way we move a field forward is by people exploring better methods and processes and testing them so that we're not just selling snake oil. Uh, and I, I think that uh, as an academic, the intellectual integrity is based on the research. It's it's one of the reasons. Why, I mean, I I've had people for the better part of the last fifteen years asking why didn't why aren't we writing the book on coaching, um, the practitioner oriented, human oriented book on coaching? And I said we don't have enough concrete data yet to be able to. Uh, I mean, the book uh, references some of those, and we have these little things called research spotlights. But most of the book are these human stories of people reaching out and helping each other and what happens as a result. Um, but I like to know that behind it is some sound stuff, you know, some rigorous material that has gone through the scrutiny of blind reviewers and gotten published and all those kinds of things. So absolutely. And I also think that it's, that's a statement for any of us in the helping fields the fact is for people to say, okay, what's, what's the stuff behind it? And I'm not saying that the person who's talking about it has to be the person who's done that research, but they should be able to point to where they're getting their ideas. Uh, and, and that's where I feel, you know, I feel proud that we've taken this field that's been around. I mean, look, uh, you know, essentially coaching is at the heart of it. What we used to call having friends. 
but we don't have time for friends anymore, you know? So, or, you know, or we just Facebook them. We don't really talk to them, <clears throat> but you know, if you go back, I mean, I remember walking through the uh, ruins at Ephesus and in, in Turkey and looking at some of the Greek temples. And there's this one place where by the big facade of the old library there that they had the, um, areas, you could still see the stone, uh, benches where they had the seminar, which was people sitting and unfortunately then it was typically male people, but, um, uh, it was people sitting and talking about important ideas. And the whole idea was people would try to spend a certain amount of their time either reflecting on the nature of life or goodness. And some did it through their religious practices. Some did it through more intellectual means. And over the years, you know, we've always relied on our close friends, our extended families to do that. But life has gotten too busy and we've um, moved away from our friends and family too often. So we need a booster shot. And I think this is where those of us who are in the coaching field can really help. Couldn't agree more. What what would you like people to take away from all the things that we've been talking about here? Other than the fact that I suspect the seventies are coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's just, uh, you know, I live in Boston, so uh, recreational use is now legal. And although uh, they oh, claim right. you're not supposed to smoke in public, but my wife and I are live um, a few hundred uh, feet from the Boston common where we walk our dogs and, I got to tell you, most days, you know, you can get high just from a contact high, just walking through the park, um, you know, and then with all these protests going on and, you know, and the power of uh, rock music, not just Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket Man movies, but I'm beginning to feel like that mood of the 70s is coming back, hopefully without the hyperinflation. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, <laughs> seriously, I think... Um, the themes of what you talked about doing for your personal routine, that process is a discovery process that you've uh, worked with over time. And you find that it really helps put your day on a different footing, a different perspective. That's the kind of thing I would hope we can encourage everyone to do for themselves and in their interactions with others. So, yes, I think. In, in the last chapter of the book, we ask at the very end for people to join us in a dream. And the dream is that, yes, people in their helping coaching relationships use these approaches. But we also would encourage people to try to have one 15-minute conversation a day with somebody in which they bring them into this positive emotional attractor. They do coaching with compassion, even if it's not formal coaching. It could be over coffee or a break in work or walking from the subway to your office um, or the parking lot to your office. But to have a conversation, a brief one that helps move somebody into the positive state, into the positive emotional attractor. I think if we start to do that, we're going to find uh, uh, it spreads. It has a positive contagion and people will be able to truly create a future that we all think would Mean, make for a much more meaningful life. Lovely. All right. I think we can probably cut that, use a, a noise gate or something and at least reduce that. So um, hopefully it won't 
drown out the, the most important part of the message that you were just delivering. <laughs> and I, and I did like, right. Yeah. Here's the really touching part, bringing tears to our eyes and the phone is ringing saying, Oh, pass, pass, pass. I didn't waver though. I didn't even look at the phone. <laughs> Richard, thank you very much for being on the show. It's, it's been a real honor. Oh, Ramon, this is delightful. Thank you for the opportunity to, to share the ideas and for uh, the conversation. That's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe, leave a five-star review, and then head over to brainfirsttraininginstitute.com to join our community of coaches. And for resources and products to help you upgrade your brain in life, including interviews with leading neuroscientists and health and high-performance experts, go to mybrainfirst.com. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon.